Hey everyone, we love a book with a moral. The moral of The Great Gatsby is, if your mistress runs over your mistress's husband's mistress and your mistress's husband's mistress's husband thinks you did it, you should learn to catch bullets. It's by Francis S. Fitzgerald. I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and I'm glad I didn't fight in World War I. Not because of the carnage, but so that I was able to avoid coming back and living a lavish life in a mansion and never being truly happy. The Great Gatsby asks, can a marriage survive double adultery? Yes, if at the end of the story, everyone you cheated with is dead. <laughs> and this is The Book Pile. Cameron J. Conrad says, this is one of my favorite podcasts to listen to. Well, if you know that, Cameron, then you also know that <laughs> I don't like to hear that this is one of someone's favorites. He continues, I will never read Goodnight Moon to my little sister the same again. I wonder what he means by that. What did we bring to the table that changed it for people? I guess that it's actually scary and empty. I'm mostly curious what compliment you would take unambiguously. <laughs> That's what you're still hung up on. I guess what I need to hear is, not only is this my favorite podcast, it's now the only podcast I listen to. <laughs> You want your podcast listeners to be like your wife. You don't want them seeing other podcasts ever. <laughs> You're offended that they even used to. <laughs> All right. And if you want to see me live, I'm going to be in Carlsbad, California, October 29th at Nerd Comedy Night. Go to KellenErskin.com for tickets. I'm still just doing my regular act. That's just the name of the, of the show that the guy puts on. <laughs> Dave will be there. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, our next two books are I Will Teach You to Be Rich and Frankenstein. All right. And without further ado, we dive into another episode from the High School Required Reading List. Here are four <laughs> lessons that we took from The Great Gatsby. Lesson one. If you write honestly about emotions and people, it's more likely to endure. This book is almost 100 years old. I couldn't believe how many moments were so relatable to my high school and college experience. <laughs> Gatsby is in love with this woman, Daisy, and he looks out across the water at the green light by her house, and he's obsessed with it. And it's very relatable to those of us who, as teenagers, would change our route home from school to drive by our crush's house. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in case she looked out the window for those three seconds. <laughs> Every time it didn't happen, I was disappointed. <laughs> Another Gatsby moment. Have you ever built up a romance in your head? And then when it actually happens, you're like, oh, <laughs> he's been dreaming about Daisy five years and check out this line. There must have been moments when Daisy tumbled short of his dreams, not through her own fault, but because of the colossal vitality of his illusion. <laughs> I wish I'd said that when my prom date and I had nothing to talk about. <laughs> It had gone beyond her, beyond everything. No amount of fire or freshness can challenge what a man will store up in his ghostly heart. And then hand her the corsage. <laughs> Gatsby is also in love with Daisy because she's so charming and free-spirited. And later he realizes she's kind of careless about hurting people. And he says, her voice is full of money. I remember young crushes where I thought someone was just so free and looking back, it may have been partly because her family was rich enough to make her actions consequenceless. <laughs> like sometimes I think free-spirited is what we call a rude person if they're attractive. <laughs> I don't know what the specific psychology is behind this, but you know how when you are attracted to someone, they become even more attractive to you. 
Uh, but then the same person can become less attractive as you start to grow apart. You know, mm -hmm. you look back at an ex or I'm sure they look back at me and they're like, oh, that horse or whatever. <laughs> Sometimes it's really sweet. Like you'll have a friend show you a picture of who they're dating. Like, aren't they beautiful? And it's like, this person is in love. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You're like, oh, I'm sure they are. <laughs> you can't use the same thing that you would if someone was like baking something or painting a picture where you're like, oh, yes, they look very original. <laughs> Such a unique spin. <laughs> On a face. <laughs> All right. Lesson two, make every sentence a microcosm. And it's not every sentence in this book, but I, I enjoy a book where it seems like you could open it up to any page, put your finger down, and that sentence it was sort of described to you what this whole book is about. I, I'm now realizing mm. that I'm explaining to everyone what a microcosm is. <laughs> I, I feel like you could find that in Harry Potter. You could find it uh, in Grapes of Wrath because uh, Dave would do that open any page and fall asleep. <laughs> F. Scott Fitzgerald, to me, is just so consistent with giving us big pictures in small sentences. Mm. The first time that Nick, the narrator of the story, goes to one of Gatsby's parties, he lists off the name. And just listen to how rich these names sound. <laughs> There's uh, Da Fontenot's. O'Donovan's, the Chromes, and then probably the richest sounding name in history, Cecil Roebuck. <laughs> like, I don't know about you, Dave. I've never met a poor Cecil <laughs> or a poor Roebuck. Uh -huh. <laughs> right. That'd be like if today you had a character named Billy Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Roebuck is especially layered with wealth because Buck <laughs> yeah. is what they're loaded with in the bank, and Roe is the sport they did in college. <laughs> yeah, I've never met a poor kid who rode crew. <laughs> <laughs> also, one of the families had the random last name of Whitebait. And to me, it doesn't sound like a rich name, but it does sound like someone who cancels Caucasian movie stars. In the main hall, a bar stocked with gins and liquors and cordials so long forgotten that most of the female guests were too young to know one from another. <laughs> the female guests specifically. <laughs> Glad we've gotten better there. <laughs> And with that detail, doesn't it make sense that DiCaprio played the great Gatsby? <laughs> and then the cars from New York are parked five deep in the drive, and already the halls and salons and verandas are gaudy with primary colors and hair shorn in strange new ways, shawls beyond the dreams of Castile. And that, to me, is wow. especially like, you know, just a postcard from the Roaring Twenties. But this last one... <laughs> this last one is actually one that's mentioned before the party starts. He says, gardeners and men with hammers were there to repair the ravages of the night before. And <laughs> I just love wow. the story that this is telling, like the history uh -huh. that it is giving the behind it. I would love to have a party where the next day where I had to tell my wife, like, 
uh, I need to make a phone call to some guys with tools <laughs> so they could fix everything that was broken because of how much fun we were having last night. <laughs> Kellen, you don't drink or cheat on your wife. What are you doing at this party? Oh, man, it was the craziest <laughs> Settlers of Catan session that we've ever. <laughs> we were trading bricks and hay like someone knocked over a lamp. That is a joke. That was just that was the first thing that came off the top of my head. I, I really want to let everyone know I hate that game. <laughs> You can't commit longer than five seconds to this identity you hate. (laughs) (laughs) On this podcast, you'll pretend to be a burglar or a murderer, but you make a joke about liking settlers and you're like, no, no, that goes against my values. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a microcosm of my life. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Lesson three. Simply have an incredible voice in your 20s and write the great American novel by 30. When a writer friend is looking for ideas, I always suggest writing the next great American novel, (laughs) and no one takes my advice. But right from the top of the book, his writing voice is so confident and precise. And I used to think having a good voice was just mastering language and plot. Not till college did I realize, oh, all the best writers have strong opinions. Hmm. And the second thing I realized was, I have no strong opinions. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but now now I have the other problem where I'm worried I don't have a single big opinion that I can't trace back to a book. <laughs> anyway, Fitzgerald was young, but he had very strong and specific things to say about the rich and decadence and romance. So my advice to aspiring writers is just be incredibly talented. <laughs> my sister Jess points out to me, if you want to feel behind as a comedy writer, look up how old Mindy Kaling and BJ Novak were when they wrote the most iconic Office episodes. Oh, no. What were they, do you know? They were 25 in that first season. Cool. And how old was uh, Fitzgerald? He was 30 when this came out. That's insane. Yeah, to me, <laughs> F. Scott Fitzgerald sounds like someone who was born as a 52-year-old. <laughs> F. Scott Fitzgerald sounds like someone who hates Scott Fitzgerald. <laughs> <laughs> Look for Dave's book coming out next year. Uh, His pen name is F. John Steinbeck. (laughs) I've only read two of his books, and I actually liked The Moon is Down. Oh, Maybe I just hate farmers. I do. (laughs) All right. Lesson four. If you want to write an important book, make sure you include Allegories of America. So I don't know if I enjoyed reading this book as much as I enjoyed finishing it. (laughs) So I can finally say that I read it, right? Next up, Anna Karenina, Moby Dick, and Oh, the Places You'll Go. I've never actually read the whole thing of Oh, the Places You'll Go, because as a kid, I was always like, there are so many more words on these pages than his other ones. (laughs) But you know what? It worked out because since then, I've had it summarized to me at every high school graduation. <laughs> Have you really never finished it? No, I've never I've never actually like read every full page. I don't think I own it. <laughs> at every Barnes & Noble, when a teenager is trying to buy that book, it should be required that the cashier ask them whether or not they're valedictorian. <laughs> And if they are, the cashier has to be like, I'm sorry, I can't. <laughs> it's a controlled substance. <laughs> choose, choose any other book in here, please. <laughs> 
this poor straight A student. So as you go forth with a wocket in your pocket. <laughs> so I do appreciate a book with symbolism. And this is a book where some is obvious and the rest of it is up to college freshmen to pretend is there <laughs> to desperately impress a professor. You know those things you can't argue with that you would write? Like Gatsby's Rolls Royce is emblematic of how he rolled over the poor with his opulence. <laughs> it's got to be torture to be a college English teacher. It has to be. It's like, oh. <laughs> You're teaching people when their writing ability is lowest and their confidence is highest. <laughs> <laughs> yes. like, I appreciate the effort with a thesaurus, but please. <laughs> And there are a couple real moments that I loved, like when the dust is settling from the tragic events at the end, and Nick, before returning to Minnesota from New York, he walks to Gatsby's house one last time, lays on the shore, and thinks about what this land must have looked like to explorers. But then he makes a connection between the pursuit of this new land and the misguided pursuits of the characters in the book, and that this whole novel is a story about the West. And I know that this is the point when readers are like, oh, now this is an iconic book because it was actually about something bigger. And my pushback is that maybe it's not as deserving of all this reverence if it's not telling us anything new. It's not a cautionary tale of something that we were all blind to before. I do think it's a compelling story, but does this also mean that Lord of the Rings could have won a Pulitzer if at the end Tolkien was like, and this was a, a tale of capitalism? <laughs> And it's like, yeah, I already know how problematic excess wealth can be, but you're not teaching me anything. Mm -hmm. There was nothing revelatory about it. Sort of the same thing I said about The Alchemist, where if a message feels cliche, but it came out a long time ago, maybe it wasn't cliche then. Mm -hmm. In fact, maybe the message succeeded and became a cliche. I can see that. That is a problem. When you watch or read the thing that was new at the time, but then became so copied that it became its own genre. <laughs> it is hard to experience the first one and not be like, this is hacky. Because that's what, <laughs> like, Night of the Living Dead was the first zombie movie. And it wasn't like, oh, a zombie movie. It was, what is this movie? Uh -huh. It was so groundbreaking. <laughs> but I watched it a couple of years ago and I was like, well, this is the most boring zombie movie I've ever <laughs> <laughs> so your your point also, is is a fair one. That does make sense to me, uh, especially if you were within either of the these classes on the wealth spectrum right when this book came out. I imagine that poor people in the Midwest are reading it like, wow, this sounds like fun. I die early. I don't care. <laughs> I get to have a car. And then rich people are reading it like, uh, I better buy a bulletproof vest. <laughs> All right, random facts. I want to show you how much the eastern United States is obsessed with itself. They keep saying Gatsby is from the West. Look at a map of the country. Gatsby is from Minnesota. <laughs> New York and Boston and D.C. are so stuck on themselves. The states in the middle of the country are called the Midwest. <laughs> and when they say the South, they don't mean Arizona. They're like, oh, we meant South of us. <laughs>
Yeah, the point at which it's most obvious Gatsby is lying about his past. Nick asks him which part of the Midwest he's from, and Gatsby goes, San Francisco. (laughs) (laughs) And then Gatsby follows that with, I also went to college at Oxford. And it's like, yeah, you went to Oxford, but you don't know that the Golden Gate Bridge isn't in Kansas. (laughs) I want to tell you one of my big pet peeves. This book is a classic, almost 100 years old, one of the great American novels. And if you Google it, the movie comes up first. It makes me furious. (laughs) This happens with almost every book that has a movie. Here, the movie came out in 2013. No one watched it since 2014. But Google is like, surely you mean the good kind of media, yes? (laughs) I do want to ask, in the last eight years, has any of your friends or your wife ever been like, hey, you want to throw on The Great Gatsby? (laughs) No. Speaking of which... Leonardo DiCaprio has an almost unparalleled batting average, not only at the box office, but with critics. He has a staggering 27 movies that have been certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow. It's his third lowest scored movie on Rotten Tomatoes, just trailing J. Edgar Hoover and The Beach, um, <laughs> which is, sounds like one movie. Those are two movies. J. Edgar Hoover and The Beach sounds like a fun, whimsical vacation romp of the head of the FBI. <laughs> <laughs> What's he like when he's not bugging MLK? (laughs) It's also funny to consider the irony of this cautionary tale of wealth with the actor playing Gatsby being someone who in real life is even more wealthy than Gatsby. (laughs) Like, do do you think DiCaprio had to tone it down for this? Like, okay... I need to imagine what it would be like to be a guy who only owns one mansion. (laughs) Leo has been in The Great Gatsby, Titanic, and Romeo and Juliet, and they all have the same plot. Forbidden lovers get together at a fancy shindig, things go well, and then things go so bad. (laughs) I may have already said this, but the funniest thing to me about Romeo's death in Romeo and Juliet... He's going there with the intent to die. And then Paris comes and duels him. And instead of letting him kill him, he kills Paris. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I'll see you in a couple of minutes. I think that this book should actually just be called The Great Third Wheel, because that's who the narrator is. <laughs> yeah, it's one thing to be a good wingman. But this narrator keeps getting made a wingman for adultery, which is a very different job. (laughs) Nick is just like at Gatsby's place when Gatsby has this woman over. (laughs) Eventually, Nick's like, "Uh, uh, okay, bye, guys. (laughs) Yeah, to be clear, he keeps trying to leave and they're like, no, stay. Like, what kind of... He also, Nick starts the book by saying he tries not to judge other people. And then he judges everyone the whole time. (laughs) At one point, the narrator, again, Nick, he says, quote, there are only the pursued, the pursuing, the busy, and the tired. And I think that's the most elegant description of the four Hogwarts houses. I I can prove it right now. So, Dave, you and I, we haven't rehearsed this. I'm going to name each type of person again, as according to Nick, and we're each going to say the first Hogwarts house that comes to mind that matches each category. Okay? You ready? Oh, gosh. Okay, wait. Say the four again. The Pursued Gryffindor. Gryffindor. 
All right. <laughs> okay. The pursuing Slytherin. Slytherin. <laughs> awesome. All right. <laughs> the busy Ravenclaw. Ravenclaw. <laughs> because they study and we hardly meet any of them. So they're busy with something. So then that leaves the tired Hufflepuff. Hufflepuff. It's funny. It's like they just end up under the most pathetic category every time. (laughs) But every time uh, someone tries to explain the differences, Hufflepuff, it's always like, they're just, I mean, they're so nice. Hufflepuff is the et cetera house. <laughs> well, it's funny too, because like I push back when they say they're hardworking. And it's uh, like Slytherin's pretty hardworking too, because. <laughs> yeah, and Ravenclaw. <laughs> yeah. Can you think of a time when you see someone in Ravenclaw do something real smart? Huh. They never win the house cup. No, that's true. The one we know best is freaking Luna Lovegood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Joe just cries a lot. Uh-huh. <laughs> in your first lesson, you brought up how sometimes we build up too much in our minds, what it's going to be like when we finally get to uh, be with our crush. And I just have a quick story. There was a girl that I had a crush on when I was 15, 16, and I finally worked up the courage to ask her to dance. Uh, maybe 10 seconds into it. It was a slow in sync song. <laughs> and she says to me, Oh, the guys that sing this song are so hot. <laughs> and immediately I was like, Oh, wow. She feels zero the same. Like she's treating me like I'm one of her best girlfriends. <laughs> oh, no. But I was trying to figure out, like, how do I twist this <laughs> to serve myself? Like, oh, yeah, these guys, they remind me of me. <laughs> I have more abs than all of them together. <laughs> Lift up a shirt to show your 30 small abs. <laughs> I think of boy bands as being like the Hunger Games, where they form an alliance, but they know only one of them is getting out of there. <laughs> like NSYNC, JT. Jackson 5, MJ. Destiny's Child, Beyonce. The Osmonds, Donnie. 98 Degrees, Nick Lachey. I think One Direction is the first boy band I can think of where more than one of them had success. I, <laughs> I, I, right now I'm torn to think more or less of you the way that you are able to rattle off every one of those. I know who I am. You sounded like you are participating in the lightning round of a game show on the CW network. <laughs> I've just thought about this because I'm just so curious why only one of them ever wins. <laughs> I think also their solo work is usually the first time I start really listening to them. Like I listen to way more JT than NSYNC and way more Harry Styles than One Direction. I just want... <laughs> I don't feel as bad about myself after hearing that. And then seven minutes ago, you were like, also, I hate the Grapes of Wrath. <laughs> Wait, so because I like Harry Styles music, me hating the Grapes of Wrath is less valid. <laughs> yeah. All right, to recap, our favorite lessons from The Great Gatsby. One, if you write honestly about emotions and people, it's more likely to endure. Two, make every sentence a microcosm. Three, simply have an incredible voice in your 20s and write the great American novel by 30. Four, if you want to write an important book, make sure you include allegories of America. And five, speaking of guys with the word great in their name, Alexander the Great would have dominated settlers of Catan. (laughs) 